from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Talks about how to argue with an idiot, um, but I changed things since the AP came out, and I didn't really know what to call this. I, I like the uh, spurious but entertaining. I think desperate and pathetic actually also fits. Um, when I saw that on the internet was spicy yet spineless, I thought that was good. Uh, this one's already been taken. If you've been on the internet, uh, a lot of people have been doing painting at home on their bodies. Uh, this is kind of relates to the old uh, one. I, hopefully, I don't have to explain that one. Um, little need for math remediation. Uh, some people have uh, challenge in their math skills on the AAP task force. Um, Bill Clinton was on uh, the Daily Show recently. He said ideologues start with the position and they find the science to back it up, and that's what's happening here. Or as Ronald Reagan would say, there they go again. Um, and my favorite was this one, but I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> the correct one. What does it mean, white day H? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> I like that. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We're sharing, we're sharing jokes today, just so you know that. According to the AP, certain things don't exist. The foreskin doesn't exist. The rich band doesn't exist. Condoms don't exist. Bodily integrity doesn't exist. Self-determination and open future for children doesn't exist. Harm from forceful amputation doesn't exist, and hepatitis B or C does not exist. They fail to make their case on a number of levels. Uh, they are unable to uh, elicit the level of benefits. Uh, they don't know what the level of harms are, so how they can say that the uh, benefits outweigh out the harms uh, when you don't know the ratio, you don't know the numerator or the denominator, how can you make that statement when you don't know what the numbers are? Also, they want third parties to pay for this, despite the fact that there are less expensive, actually effective options out there. Uh, the other thing that happens with third-party payers is they don't pay for stuff that works now. Why would they do that in the future? Also, they fail to address the issue uh, that circumcision as an elective procedure uh, should be delayed according to the 1995 Committee on Bioethics. Uh, they do cite that um, position, but they do it very selectively. Also, their uh, scholarship is quite sloppy. Uh, their documentation is horrible. Their writing is very poor. Uh, recently, I uh, read an article on uh, reflux in children with gastroesophageal reflux. It was a position paper. It was 51 pages long. had over 600 footnotes. For every statement, they had a statement and then listed the level of evidence to, the, to support that statement. That's the standard. They didn't come anywhere near that. Also, they had citations that were not uh, cited uh, properly, and they stopped uh, reviewing the medical literature in the spring of 2010, and that's before the Berkeley Symposium. So that's been a long time, so the stuff is already out of date. Uh, one of my favorite statements was newborn, and Martin will appreciate this, newborn males not circumcised at birth are much less likely to elect circumcision in adolescence or early childhood. <laughs> Compared to who? <laughs> um, anyway, as far as quality assessments, they did not use the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, which is the standard right now. Also, all the pro-circumcision articles that were quoted in the study were said to have good quality. 
All other studies had poor or fair quality. It was very arbitrary on how they did that. They should have used the, like I said, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine uh, levels of evidence. Also, they only had 248 references, uh, and most of them seemed to be about anesthesia in older boys. Um, one of the major things that they're still hitting on is uh, urinary tract infections. There's a reason that they're doing the fear mongering for this, but a number of things that they haven't uh, kept up to date on. One is that male fetuses are more likely to have uh, vesicoureteral reflux, which is where urine goes back up from the bladder towards the kidneys, and nearly all of them outgrow it. So it's a temporary problem. Infections are increased for males only in the first six months of life, and several studies now have shown that UTIs in the first six months of life are less likely to cause kidney damage. We also know that oral antibiotics are as effective as intravenous antibiotics in treating infants with fever and UTI. Also, we know uh, now from uh, that there's not a link between UTIs and developing hypertension or chronic kidney disease. We have uh, um, nationwide data from the Swedes going back a couple of decades. Thank God for the Finns, they published a, a meta-analysis a year ago in pediatrics showing there's no link between urinary tract infections and kidney disease. So the big fear out there is this is going to cause kidney failure in, the, in these kids and it just doesn't happen. Uh, the numbers in the medical literature that they didn't get right and the AAP task force are actually 110 to 195. Those are how many circumcisions you need to prevent one urinary tract infection according to these studies. Well, at $250 per procedure, it costs between $27,000 and $48,000 to prevent one urinary tract infection, which can be treated with an $18 antibiotic. Um, also, the approach to working up UTIs is changing. It's much less, much less aggressive and less expensive than it was in the past. One of the problems with these uh, studies is that they measure um, that UTIs are more likely to be diagnosed in intact infants. And that's different from intact infants having more UTIs. And part of the problem is, is that the diagnostic criteria often uses whether there's bacteria in the urine. Well, if you take uh, uh, a thousand kids and just check their urine, and they're perfectly healthy, one or two percent will have a positive urine culture. You also need to have signs of inflammation, basically white blood cells in the urine to make the diagnosis. And a lot of the uh, studies, it's either unclear what diagnostic criteria they use, or the study that was recently published in the uh, Canadian Medical Association relied on positive urine cultures. What, there's a lot of confounding having to do uh, with making the diagnosis. First, you have to go to the doctor, then you have to be sampled, then you have to have a culture done, and um, there's different things that can affect how often that happens. Um, I put together a model that began with the assumption that circumcised and intact infants had this, exactly the same rates of having a true urinary tract infection. And if you model for the confounding factors, an intact male will be uh, four times more likely to be diagnosed with a UTI, either rightly or wrongly. And that's similar to the odds ratio seen in one of the uh, studies that was done in Canada. So what happens is that many of the UTIs diagnosed in intact boys are not really urinary tract infections, but asymptomatic bacteria that does not need to be treated. And many of the real urinary tract infections in circumcised boys are missed because no one samples their urine and their fever is treated with antibiotics. Uh, if you compare uh, urinary tract infections with the most common complication that we see in, in um, young boys that have been circumcised, um, meatal stenosis occurs in about 5 to 20 percent. It was so common in the uh, 1900s uh, in the Jewish population that it was called the second circumcision to have a procedure to open up the opening of the meatus, which is where the urine comes out 
of the, at the end of the penis. Um, most of these 5 to 20% will need a surgical correction. It's mentioned only in passing in the AP task force. The number uh, needed to harm, which means that for every 5 to 20 um, circumcisions you do, you'll have one child who develops medial stenosis. Uh, contrast to the rate of urinary tract infections, which is less than 1%, and it's the only quote-unquote benefit that we see uh, before a child is old enough to give consent, so they're hanging their hat on this. So for every UTI that you supposedly uh, prevent, you're going to have between 5 and 40 cases of medial stenosis. It costs about $1,500 to correct a medial stenosis, so that's about $75 to $300 per person in the population. The cost to treat a urinary tract infection and do the workup is about $800. You should do an ultrasound on them. So for every uh, $45 to $300 um, you spend circumcising, you save $1. Um, the other thing that was completely glossed over uh, with this, and Absalom will appreciate this, I think there's been now six or seven studies that have found that in Israel, ritual circumcisions are associated with an increase of urinary tract infection. It's more than just that because a substantial percentage of them will have septicemia with infections in the blood. And the most uh, uh, recently published uh, study on this, there were two cases of meningitis that were probably associated with the ritual circumcision. What they have shown is the solid line is females, the number of female um, urinary tract infections in the first eight months of life versus the dotted lines, which is boys, and we see this huge spike in uh, urinary tract infections in the weeks following the circumcision. Um, as I mentioned, it's important because it's the only straw supporting the argument for not waiting until the age of consent. It's the only reason to do it in an infant based on the medical uh, justifications. One of the other things that happens that's different if for older boys is that you can provide adequate anesthesia that is safe. Uh, you cannot provide adequate anesthesia in the newborn period. Also, the complication rates are the same um, in the newborn period or higher in the newborn period compared to circumcisions that are done later in life. There's only been two studies that have been under direct uh, comparison. And also, as we saw earlier slide, later circumcision is unlikely. And so there's probably no reason to do these. The other thing that uh, uh, is discussed at length in the AP task force is sexually transmitted infections. These do not affect infants and children unless they're sexually abused. And so it shouldn't really be a part of infant circumcision. Also, the overall risk for STIs is higher in circumcised male. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Also, uh, there are more effective, less expensive, less invasion less invasive options for uh, preventing and treating STIs. And if we cut off every body part that could get infected, there wouldn't be much left. Um, if you look at the overall STI risk, there's been 23 studies that have looked at uh, having any STI versus no STI. Two of the studies showed a, high, a significantly higher risk in intact men. Eight studies showed uh, circumcised men were at significantly higher risk, and 13 studies showed no difference. When you do a meta-analysis, the summary effect shows that uh, about 16 um, percent reduction in STIs in men that are intact, and the difference was statistically significant, but there was a significant uh, between study hydrogenity. It's a great word. Um, overall, what happens uh, is that uh, genital discharge syndrome, which are the drips, um, things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, nonspecific uh, urethritis, 
They're much more common forms of UTI, especially in developed countries, and we see these more commonly in circumcised men. While the genital um, ulcer disease, which is herpes, chancroid, and syphilis, are more common in intact men because they're mucosal diseases and there's more mucosa on an intact men. And those are seen primarily in Africa, those are less common. Uh, if you uh, an ex another example of a mucosal illness is cold sores. If we cut off everybody's lips, we'd have a lot fewer cold sores. <laughs> true. Anyway, um, as far as the, uh, the various forms of the drip, um, the clap, I never know where that term came from. But uh, we, we see no differences in gonorrhea based on uh, circumcision status, nor with chlamydia. With nonspecific urethritis, there's a strong trend towards being more common in circumcised men. Overall, uh, chancroid, there's really no good studies. There's only been three studies that are very old. It's diagnosed on the basis of clinical exam. A uh, number of studies were included in, under chancroid in a meta-analysis by Weiss. However, uh, those studies uh, included men who did not have chancroid and had herpes and things like that, so it's never really made sense. We don't see this very much in developed nations. Um, genital herpes, a meta-analysis found border, quote, borderline statistical significance for herpes and uh, the AP actually repeated that language. That should drive every epidemiologist and statistician through the roof because being borderline statistically significant is kind of like being kind of pregnant. Um, <clears throat> The other thing in, in uh, that meta-analysis, Weiss did not include two of her own studies that included 1,500 men um, that showed that um, HSV or herpes was more common in circumcised men. Since then, there have been a number of other studies. None of them have found a statistically significant difference uh, based on circumcision status. Uh, there's also a large study that was uh, done in, in India with 6,000 men, uh, intact men were significantly less likely to be seropositive for herpes simplex um, and it was published in March of 2010 and the AAP did their search through April of 2010 and somehow this got missed in the AAP um, search. I don't know how that happened. Um, one of the things that you have to look at with the um, um, randomized clinical trials is they had a problem with lead time bias. Uh, basically, you want to, going forward, have both groups have the same time of exposure. In these trials, men who were circumcised were told to wear condoms for six weeks uh, while they were healing. So basically, they did not have the same exposure as the men who were in the uh, control group. And so it's similar if you have an eight-mile race, if you give one team a half an hour start, they're going to, and then ex your expectation is they're going to cross the finish line at the same time. That's certainly not going to happen. So by having this uh, unequal exposure, it tends to overestimate the treatment effect. And then it's amplified by early termination. So it would be like about halfway into the race, you decide that you're going to shorten the race from eight miles to six miles and still expect both teams to uh, 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 cross the finish line at the same time. Um, it's, some of the, uh, the back and forth on this issue uh, with the people that, with the circumcision lobbyist is that they don't see this as a big deal. It may have a small effect on the numbers, but lead time bias is part of study design 101. Anytime you have a prospective study, you have to think about whether there's lead time bias. You taught this at the very beginning of learning how to do study designs. So the sign that they didn't adjust for lead time bias is either a sign that they're incompetent or it's a sign of an academic malfeasance. 
The, in the RCTs, uh, the Ugandan study uh, found a statistically significant difference, but when you adjust for lead time bias, it's no longer statistically significant. Um, in South Africa and Kenya, they did not find a statistically significant difference, and the numbers actually are less uh, impressive once you adjust for lead time bias. As far as syphilis goes, uh, in a meta-analysis, there was a, a slight increased risk for intact men. It was primarily in the African studies. Uh, the two of the randomized controlled trials uh, reported on syphilis, and <coughs> excuse me, and neither of them, both of them, had a trend that uh, circumcised men were at higher risk, but it was not statistically significant. And you have to ask yourself: Do these uh, studies apply to developed nations? Um, herpes, I mean, excuse me, human papillomavirus has also been looked at uh, fairly carefully uh, in the randomized controlled trials. The problem is, is something that we call sampling bias. To give you an example of that, older people are more likely to have landlines. Older people are more likely to be conservative. So if you do a public opinion poll that just calls people who have landlines, you're going to have a much different uh, outcome than if you uh, survey people who have cell phones. And so you're going to get two different results. Basically what happens is intact men who have human papillomavirus more likely have it on their glands. Circumcised men who have human papillomavirus are more, more likely to have it on the shaft. So if you sample only the glands or the urethra, you'll underestimate the rate of uh, HPV infections in circumcised men by 34%. Uh, two of the RCTs have sampled only the glands and urethra, and surprise, surprise, they found it was more common in intact men. That's because once you adjust for sampling bias, their differences are no longer statistically significant. What's more interesting is in the Kenyan study, they've um, kind of, they released a study where they measured the stuff and then didn't report it because uh, it's, uh, it's probably that they didn't find any difference. Um, the other problem we run into with the um, human papillomavirus is that several of the studies relied on self-report of circumcision status. The study out of Mexico, they had 95 men who said they were circumcised, but only 8.3% of them were actually circumcised on physical examination. The authors reported the results based on the self-report of circumcision rather than on physical exam. Um, we also found there's a significant association between studies using self-report and an increased risk for intact men. So if you look at this overall, there have been several review articles, but only one is adjusted for the sampling bias that I mentioned, um, not uh, 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 sampling the penis appropriately, and also the misclassification bias, which is men reporting their own circumcision status. When you adjust for these forms of bias, there's no difference in risk. Also, uh, since the AP uh, has uh, um, did their literature search, Van um, Buskirk did a, a study of um, University of Washington students and found no difference in HPV risk based on circumcision status. So there's also what I would like to call the Brazil effect. Uh, several of the multicultural, multi-country studies have H, of HPV have included Brazil. Brazil has a very high rate of HPV and it also has a very high circumcision rate. So when the data are combined, it's the association between what? Very low, low circumcision. Oh, sorry, low circumcision rate. That's why it's on the slide right. Um, <laughs> that's for those people who can read. Um, when the data are combined, um, is the association between the foreskin and HPV or because the foreskin happens to live in Brazil? 
Um, there's also been two studies that I know of that have looked at uh, transmission to women. Uh, one of them was in 2003 in the University of Washington uh, students. They found circumcision in the male partner was not a risk factor. Um, it's amazing that they did an RCT on this in, in Uganda through the Johns Hopkins group. Made no mention at all in their discussion of this previous study. Uh, but they, that study was um, horribly flawed. They used a collection method that only had 74% sensitivity, which means that 26% of the cases of HPV would be missed. Uh, the major oncogenic strains, 16 and 18, there was no difference in those uh, strains. Also, condom use was associated with a higher rate of uh, human papillomavirus in those studies, and the baseline prevalence of HPV in women who reported only one sexual partner in the previous year was 55%, and that's in a study that would miss 26% of the infections. 17% were lost to follow-up, and the baseline data on those women were not reported. Um, from that uh, study, there was a lot of hype about it preventing cervical cancer in, in the lay literature, and they were really pushing that. Right now, when I was in um, the, at the AIDS conference recently in Washington, D.C., they were really pushing that circumcision prevents cervical cancer, uh, and that's in one of the AAP talking points. But if you repeat the, a lie often enough, you know what happens. There are 16 studies that have looked for an association between uh, the male uh, circumcision and, uh, surf and cervical cancer in the female partner. Uh, one of them found a statistically significant difference, but if you look at the numbers and you calculate the p-value properly, it was not statistically significant. So there's been 16 studies, and they've all failed to come up uh, with anything different. There's one substrata and one, and one uh, study that did show a difference, uh, but given their numbers, uh, such analysis would be impossible, and it's probably the Brazil effect. When we talk about the AAP, uh, somehow, I mean, HIV and the AAP, they found uh, 14 studies between HIV and circumcision. I found over 100, so I don't know how they missed all those other studies. Um, they relied on models that use African data applying to North American population, and they ignored the studies from North America. Uh, there are three studies that were done in Africa that we've all heard about. Uh, they're nearly identical in methods and in the sources of bias. They're unethical before they began. Uh, it's crazy is that they came up with nearly identical results. Uh, and the fact that their results are so tightly clustered, the chances of that happening by chance alone is about 1 in 50. Uh, they, both, they lack both internal and external validity. As far as internal validity, uh, most people are familiar with the forms of bias that we've seen in those. And I can talk about that later if people have a question. Also, the, um, these studies were highly overpowered, and the fact that they had all these built-in biases that pushed in the same direction nearly guaranteed that the results that they wanted before the studies began. As far as um, one of the biggest problems that we've also seen is that they assume that all the infections were heavily sexually transmitted without testing for it. Uh, Daniel Halpern in D.C. this July asked Bailey if the source of infection were known for these, and he said he did not know. Um, and based on the inf infection rate seen in men who did not have unprotected sex, uh, about half of the infections in these trials were probably not sexually transmitted. So basically, to, they are unable to prove their hypothesis that circumcision has an impact on heterosexually transmitted HIV because they don't know how it was transmitted. Um, also, they un there were unreported important findings in the Ugandan study. They found that men who did not wash for 10 minutes after sex 
uh, who had a lower risk of HIV infection if they were attacked and didn't wash than men who were circumcised. Also, several anomalies in their data that makes no sense. Their HIV infection rates were much higher than ST the STI rates, and the STIs are um, the rate of infection is about 1 in, in 1,000 contacts uh, for HIV. It's about 1 in 4 for things like gonorrhea, yet the gonorrhea rates were much lower than the HIV rates. Also in Uganda, they found that men who use condoms all the time had a higher rate of infection than men who never use condoms. As far as external validity, we want uh, things that work in the laboratory to see if they work in the real world. Well, in Africa, 11 out of 18 countries where they look at the prevalence of HIV by circumcision status, they found that circumcised men were at higher risk of HIV. So how is that possible if there's a 60% protection? Also, um, heterosexually transmitted HIV is about three times higher in the U.S. than in Europe, and the circumcision rates are much higher in the U.S. Also, blacks have the highest rate of, uh, highest rate of heterosexually transmitted HIV in the United States, and they also have the highest circumcision rate. Uh, these are the countries in Africa that uh, circumcised men are at, uh, have a higher prevalence of HIV. Uh, when we look at the North American studies, there's actually been uh, several out there. There's a new one out of Puerto Rico that actually found that intact or circumcised men are at greater risk for HIV infection than intact men. A uh, big study out of uh, San Francisco found no difference. Laumann in his national survey saw no difference. difference. Haiti uh, in the national survey saw no difference. There's a study out of New York and the Navy in Baltimore. None of these found a significant difference between um, HIV and, um, and circumcision status. So there's a number of lame excuses out there. <clears throat> Jason Bailey Reed in DC talked about a study they were doing where they relied on self-report on circumcision status, yet a few minutes later he denounced the national surveys in Africa they talked about because they relied on self-report. And so I guess it's good if you do it and it's bad if someone else does it. Um, but the self-report, any bias from that would not be enough to undo a 60% uh, uh, protection. Also, the excuse is that uh, the reason rates are lower in Europe is things that are, are just different in Europe. And uh, that was in the AP task uh, um, talking points. And what that, that tells them is maybe we should copy what Europe's doing. Uh, the take home from this is that by focusing on circumcision, other much more important factors are, are ignored, uh, like we were talking about in the hall. If you want to reduce uh, HIV, circumcision is, is way down the list, if not on the list at all. Um, Primary prevention is when we apply things uh, to a general population. Typically, you do a pilot study after you do an experimental study, see if it works there. That has not been done. They've jumped immediately to a, uh, um, to, to a general rollout in Africa. Um, you also, for primary prevention to work, you have to have high levels of, of uh, efficacy and effectiveness, and also you want to have minimal side effects, or at least they should be proportional to the severity of the disease prevented. Circumcision fails on all of these. There's no internal validity, there's no external validity, and pilot studies have not been done. Uh, with the rollout of circumcision in Uganda, the uh, incidence of HIV is now going up again. So what, what 100 plus populations say? Um, basically, if you, the general population is at lower risk, uh, uh, the general population, there is not an association between HIV and um, <coughs> being, having a foreskin, and also as the underlying rate of uh, uh, circumcision goes up, the risk for HIV in intact men also goes up. Uh, the empty um, triangles on this are the men from high-risk populations. The closed triangles are the men from the general population. As you move to the right, the uh, uh, association between 
the foreskin and um, HIV goes up. Uh, we'll just bust through this because we're running out of time. Um, also, this shows that as the circumcision rate goes up, the risk for HIV in intact men also goes up. And you also notice that they're clustered on either end, not too much in the middle, because uh, populations tend to be either more circumcised or, or less circumcised. Um, and this basically says that the same thing that I just pointed out. We'll skip over that. Um, STIs do not occur randomly. They tend to go quickly in close populations uh, where they can spread more quickly. There's no association between the foreskin and HIV in general populations, so it doesn't make any sense to focus uh, circumcision on the general population. And the enthusiasm for circumcision reflects the enthusiasm for the promoters have for it rather than the available data. Uh, this is something they were handing out in. Um, in Washington, D.C., these little circles, uh, the, the wedges that are in red are the percentage of uh, men that have uh, signed up for the voluntary or uh, male uh, medical circumcision there, and the rates are between 1 and 5 percent, except for, uh, I think it's in Kenya. So it hasn't been really picked up. So this is what failure looks like. After five years and billions of dollars, men have rejected, rejected circumcision as a means of preventing HIV. So in July in Washington, D.C., they've announced that they're rebranding circumcision to reshape your relationship. They're not even talking about HIV anymore. So what I think is happening is that uh, the proponents are desperate. Um, and I think this explains the flurry of publications that are um, all saying the same thing. I think it also explains the AP statement. I think the ethical arguments are irrefutable, so they have to prop up the scientific giant, uh, justifications because it's all they have left. And they need to act now before the science is looked at carefully and found that uh, how weak it is. They have to act now before the failures in Africa become apparent and they can't acknowledge the harm. So how do you respond to a temper tantrum? As a pediatrician, I have a lot of experience with this. And some, uh, some temper tantrums are a pathetic cry for attention and should be ignored. And we know who those people are. We won't mention them by name, but their initials are never mind. Um, and some temper tantrums are more selective and purposeful and need to be called out. So the circumcision lobby controls the media, especially in the United States, and the medical editors, especially in the United States, and now the AP. But what I'd like to do is call on the Europeans to help us <laughs> save silly Americans from themselves. Uh, uh, <laughs> my son is studying in Copenhagen right now, and all he can say is, we Americans must look so stupid. <laughs> so any questions? <laughs> well, there must be one or two questions, but we'll have to keep it short because I kept that going. Yes, please, John. Well, oh, sorry, that's you, Paul. Yeah, um, I, I really like your, uh, your point about the about where the infections come from. And one of the things I say on here when I'm asked about what about the RCTs, I say they show the 75 men, who count, who go to the numbers, 75 men in Africa 10 years ago got HIV. We don't know how they got it, we don't know what they were doing for 10 years, but they, they're private secret lives, and we don't know. So I think that, the doubts that you raise so eloquently uh, the best weapon for dealing with this, this, um, this So basically, we're trying to extrapolate 200 infections onto a continental uh, rollout. Yeah, but right. the, the outcome is 75 right. things. Right. That came out differently. Now that's, that's, 
They say, oh, the, the, the stats are in there, but what do we say? Lies, white lies, and... Right. Well, actually, there's a fourth. There's a fourth one that begins with that are statements that begin with, with the expression "in my clinical experience." Oh, yeah. So, experience, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, what I want to know is how long is it going to take for people to realize that the African adventure was a colossal failure? It's probably going to take five to ten years. And the problem is, is that the uptake there has been so slow that uh, it may take longer. But they're also becoming aware of the fact that, the, that there's the, scan, the uh, scandals that are occurred by the, the money just being stolen right. and, and the, those in authority are buying big SUVs and the right. Well, I think part of that is that the amount of money that has been spent, yet those red wedges are pretty small. At that. Uh, during the break, uh, Eric told me that the European response was sent about a week ago or so, and I'm just wondering if, I'm, uh, well now it's, it's sent as an article, not as an e-letter response, and I'm wondering if you could just briefly tell us the gist of what you're trying to say in that, that article. Yeah, basically, it's a matter of cultural bias. And the, the, we raised the four major points in favor of circumcision uh, claimed by the AAP, namely the UTI prevention in the first uh, few years of the boy's life and sexually transmitted diseases, the HIV infections, and penile cancer. And uh, we deal with these four arguments. And uh, as uh, Rob uh, says, uh, illustrate how irrelevant they are in the Western context. Uh, uh, Richard. When the House of Cards comes down in Africa, Morris uh, uh, and Lasker are just going to say, well, it would have been a lot worse if they hadn't intervened. <laughs> and with the, with the popular press? Well, I, they may buy that, but one of the things that happened is that the HIV peaked in the late 90s. So it should be on its, it, the normal trajectory of the epidemic is that it was already on its way down. And if all of a sudden things start going up, that's that's a counter to what the trend was. So, so they really can't make that claim because we know that without the intervention, it was already improving. The downward trend just continued. You would expect the downward trend to continue, but if things level off or they start coming back up, which is what's likely to happen if they give up on condoms and go to to a circumcision. Then, then that's really hard to reflect that. Sammy, and then we'll have to call a halt uh, to move 94, on. In 94, I received a paper on uh, AIDS from Bingorion Center, uh, Medical Center, uh, and he wrote to me, he sent me large articles on AIDS, 94, and he wrote on uh, post-it, if God ordered it, it cannot be harmful. <laughs> this is what he wrote on the post-it. And I understood, in fact, all this uh, arguments have for purpose to justify the Bible. Uh, uh, and I concluded that, in fact, they could, these scientists are either fundamentalist Protestants or fundamentalist Jews. It could, it could be interesting to see what are their religious tendencies. Well, the other, the other thing that we heard around the same time is that AIDS was punishment for people who, from God, who were... Uh, That's all. You know, <laughs> ...promiscuous, so, yeah. Are Thank you, you. going to publish that wonderful list you just had? Excuse me? I'm going to ask him this printer will not publish it. Oh, okay.
Well, a lot, actually, a lot of what I covered here is in the article I gave for the to, I gave you for the last symposium. So, a lot of that's in there, which is basically um, what the circumcision proponents don't want you to know about circumcision. So, thank you very much. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 